Twelve Years a Slave, Solomon Northup, Chapter 15 In consequence of my inability in cotton-picking, Epps was in the habit of hiring me out on sugar plantations during the season of cane-cutting and sugar-making. He received for my services a dollar a day, with the money supplying my place on his cotton plantation. Cutting cane was an employment that suited me, and for three successive years I held the lead row in Hawkins, leading a gang of from fifty to a hundred hands. In a previous chapter, the mode of cultivating cotton is described. This may be the proper place to speak of the manner of cultivating cane. The ground is prepared in beds, the same as it is prepared for the reception of the cotton seed, except it's plowed deeper. Drills are made in the same manner. Planting commences in January and continues until April. It's necessary to plant a sugar field only once in three years. Three crops are taken before the seed or plant is exhausted. Three gangs are employed in the operation. One draws the cane from the rick or stack, cutting the top and flags from the stalk, leaving only that part which is sound and healthy. Each joint of the cane has an eye, like the eye of a potato, which sends forth a sprout when buried in the soil. Another gang lays the cane in the drill, placing two stalks side by side in such a manner that joints will occur once in four or six inches. The third gang follows with hose, drawing earth upon the stalks and covering them to the depth of three inches. In four weeks at the farthest, the sprouts appear above the ground, and from this time forward grow with great rapidity. A sugar field is hoed three times, the same as cotton, save that a greater quantity of earth is drawn to the roots. By the first of August, hoeing is usually over. About the middle of September, whatever is required for seed is cut and stacked in ricks, as they're termed. In October, it's ready for the mill or sugar house, and then the general cutting begins. The blade of a cane knife is 15 inches long, 3 inches wide in the middle, and tapering towards the point and handle. The blade is thin, and in order to be at all serviceable, must be kept very sharp. Every third hand takes the lead of two others, one of whom is on each side of him. The lead hand in the first place, with the blow of his knife, shears the flags from the stalk. He next cuts off the top down as far as it's green. He must be careful to sever all the green from the ripe part, inasmuch as the juice of the former sours the molasses and renders it unsaleable. Then he severs the stalk at the root and lays it directly behind him. His right and left hand companions lay their stalks, when cut in the same manner, upon his. To every three hands there is a cart which follows and the stalks are thrown into it by the younger slaves, when it's drawn to the sugar house and ground. If the planter apprehends a frost, the cane is windrowed. Windrowing is cutting the stalks at an early period and throwing them lengthwise in the water furrow in such a manner that the tops will cover the butts of the stalks. They'll remain in this condition three weeks or a month without souring and secure from frost. When the proper time arrives, they're taken up trimmed and carted to the sugar house. In the month of January, the slaves enter the field again to prepare for another crop. 
The ground is now strewn with the tops and flags cut from past year's cane. On a dry day, fire is set to this combustible refuse, which sweeps over the field, leaving it bare and clean, and ready for the hose. The earth is loosened about the roots of the old stubble, and in process of time another crop springs up from the last year's seed. It's the same the year following. But the third year the seed has exhausted its strength, and the field must be plowed and planted again. The second year the cane is sweeter and yields more than the first, and the third year more than the second. During the three seasons I labored on Hawkins' plantation, I was employed a considerable portion of the time in the sugar house. He celebrated as the producer of the finest variety of white sugar. The following is a general description of his sugar house and the process of manufacture. The mill is an immense brick building standing on the shore of the bayou. Running out from the building is an open shed, at least a hundred feet in length and forty or fifty feet in width. The boiler in which the steam is generated is situated outside the main building. The machinery and engine rest on a brick pier fifteen feet above the floor within the body of the building. The machinery turns two great iron rollers between two and three feet in diameter and six or eight feet in length. They're elevated above the brick pier and roll in towards each other. An endless carrier made of chain and wood, like leathern belts used in small mills, extends from the iron rollers out of the main building and through the entire length of the open shed. The carts in which the cane is brought from the field as fast as it's cut are unloaded at the sides of the bed. All along the endless carrier are ranged slave children, whose business it is to place the cane upon it when it's conveyed through the shed into the main building, where it falls between the rollers, is crushed, and drops upon another carrier that conveys it out of the main building in an opposite direction, depositing it in the top of a chimney upon a fire beneath, which consumes it. It's necessary to burn it in this manner because otherwise it would soon fill the building, and more especially because it would soon sour and engender disease. The juice of the cane falls into a conductor underneath the iron rollers and is carried into a reservoir. Pipes convey it from thence into five filterers holding several hogsheads each. These filterers are filled with bone black, a substance resembling pulverized charcoal. It's made of bones calcinated in close vessels and is used for the purpose of decolorizing, by filtration, the cane juice before boiling. Through these five filterers it passes in succession and then runs into a large reservoir underneath the ground floor from whence it's carried up by means of a steam pump into a clarifier made of sheet iron where it is heated by steam until it boils. From the first clarifier it's carried in pipes to a second and a third and thence into close iron pans through which tubes pass filled with steam. While in a boiling state, it flows through three pans in succession and is then carried in other pipes down to the coolers in the ground floor. Coolers are wooden boxes with sieve bottoms made of the finest wire. As soon as the syrup passes into the coolers and is met by the air, it grains and the molasses at once escapes through the sieves into a cistern below. It's then white or loaf sugar of the finest kind clear, clean, and as white as snow. 
When cool, it's taken out, packed in hogsheads, and is ready for market. The molasses is then carried from the cistern into the upper story again, and by another process, converted into brown sugar. There are larger mills, and those constructed differently from the one thus imperfectly described, but none, perhaps, more celebrated than this anywhere on Bayou Boeuf. Lambert of New Orleans is a partner of Hawkins. He's a man of vast wealth, holding, as I've been told, an interest in over 40 different sugar plantations in Louisiana. The only respite from constant labor the slave has through the whole year is during the Christmas holidays. Epps allowed us three. Others allow four, five, and six days, according to the measure of their generosity. It's the only time to which they look forward with any interest or pleasure. They're glad when night comes, not only because it brings them a few hours of repose, but because it brings them one day nearer Christmas. It's hailed with equal delight by the old and the young. Even Uncle Abram ceases to glorify Andrew Jackson, and Patsy forgets her many sorrows amid the general hilarity of the holidays. It's the time of feasting and frolicking and fiddling, the carnival season with the children of bondage. They're the only days when they're allowed a little restricted liberty, and heartily indeed do they enjoy it. It's the custom for one planter to give a Christmas supper, inviting the slaves from neighboring plantations to join his own on the occasion. For instance, one year it's given by Epps, the next by Marshall, the next by Hawkins, and so on. Usually from three to five hundred are assembled, coming together on foot, in carts, on horseback, on mules, riding double and triple, sometimes a boy and a girl, at others a girl and two boys, and at others again a boy, a girl, and an old woman. Uncle Abram astride a mule, with Aunt Phoebe and Patsy behind him, trotting towards a Christmas supper, would be no uncommon sight on Bayou Boeuf. Then, too, of all days of the year, they array themselves in their best attire. The cotton coat has been washed clean, the stump of a tallow candle has been applied to the shoes, and if so fortunate as to possess a rimless or crownless hat, it's placed jauntily on the head. They're welcomed with equal cordiality, however, if they come bareheaded and barefooted to the feast. As a general thing, the women wear handkerchiefs tied about their heads, but if chance has thrown in their way a fiery red ribbon or a cast-off bonnet of their mistress's grandmother, it's sure to be worn on such occasions. Red, the deep blood red, is decidedly the favorite color among the enslaved damsels of my acquaintance. If a red ribbon does not encircle the neck, you'll be certain to find all the hair of their woolly heads tied up with red strings of one sort or another. The table is spread in the open air and loaded with varieties of meat and piles of vegetables. Bacon and cornmeal at such times are dispensed with. Sometimes the cooking is performed in the kitchen on the plantation, at others in the shade of wide-branching trees. In the latter case, a ditch is dug in the ground, and wood laid in and burned until it's filled with glowing coals over which chickens, ducks, turkeys, pigs, and not unfrequently the entire body of a wild ox, are roasted. They're furnished also with flour, of which biscuits are made, 
and often with peach and other preserves, with tarts, and every manner and description of pies, except the mints, that being an article of pastry as yet unknown among them. Only the slave who's lived all the years on his scanty allowance of meal and bacon can appreciate such suppers. White people in great numbers assemble to witness the gastronomical enjoyments. They seat themselves at the rustic table, the males on one side, the females on the other. The two, between whom there may have been an exchange of tenderness, invariably manage to sit opposite. For the omnipresent Cupid disdains not to hurl his arrows into the simple hearts of slaves. Unalloyed and exulting happiness lights up the dark faces of them all. The ivory teeth, contrasting with their black complexions, exhibit two long white streaks the whole extent of the table. All round the bountiful board a multitude of eyes roll in ecstasy. Giggling and laughter and the clattering of cutlery and crockery succeed. Cuffy's elbow hunches his neighbor's side, impelled by an involuntary impulse of delight. Nellie shakes her finger at Sambo and laughs. She knows not why. And so the fun and merriment flows on. When the viands have disappeared and the hungry maws of the children of toil are satisfied, then, next in the order of amusement, is the Christmas dance. My business on these gala days always was to play on the violin. The African race is a music-loving one, proverbially, and many there were among my fellow bondsmen whose organs of tune were strikingly developed and who could thumb the banjo with dexterity. But at the expense of appearing egotistical, I must, nevertheless, declare that I was considered the old bull of Bayou Boeuf. My master often received letters, sometimes from a distance of ten miles, requesting him to send me to play at a ball or festival of the whites. He received his compensation, and usually I also returned with many picayunes jingling in my pockets, the extra contributions of those to whose delight I had administered. In this manner I became more acquainted than I otherwise would up and down the bayou. The young men and maidens of Holmesville always knew there was to be a jollification somewhere whenever Platt Epps was seen passing through the town with his fiddle in his hand. Where are you going now, Platt? And what's coming off tonight, Platt? Would be interrogatories issuing from every door and window, and many a time, when there was no special hurry, yielding to pressing importunities, Platt would draw his bow and, sitting astride his mule, perhaps discourse musically to a crowd of delighted children gathered round him in the street. Alas, had it not been for my beloved violin, I scarcely could conceive how I could have endured the long years of bondage. It introduced me to great houses, relieved me of many days' labor in the field, supplied me with conveniences for my cabin, with pipes and tobacco and extra pairs of shoes, and oftentimes led me away from the presence of a hard master to witness scenes of jollity and mirth. It was my companion, the friend of my bosom, triumphing loudly when I was joyful and uttering its soft, melodious consolations when I was sad. Often at midnight, when sleep had fled affrighted from the cabin and my soul was disturbed and troubled with the contemplation of my fate, it would sing me a song of peace. On holy Sabbath days, when an hour or two of leisure was allowed, 
it would accompany me to some quiet place on the bayou bank, and lifting up its voice, discourse kindly and pleasantly indeed. It heralded my name round the country, made me friends who otherwise would not have noticed me, gave me an honored seat at the yearly feasts, and secured the loudest and heartiest welcome of them all at the Christmas dance. The Christmas dance! O oh, ye pleasure-seeking sons and daughters of idleness, who move with measured step, listless and snail-like through the slow-winding cotillion, if ye wish to look upon the celerity, if not the poetry of motion, upon genuine happiness, rampant and unrestrained, go down to Louisiana and see the slaves dancing in the starlight of a Christmas night. On that particular Christmas I have now in my mind, a description whereof will serve as a description of the day generally, Miss Lively and Mr. Sam, the first belonging to Stuart, the latter to Roberts, started the ball. It was well known that Sam cherished an ardent passion for Lively, as also did one of Marshall's and another of Carey's boys. For Lively was lively indeed, and a heart-breaking coquette withal. It was a victory for Sam Roberts when, rising from the repast, she gave him her hand for the first figure in preference to either of his rivals. They were somewhat crestfallen, and shaking their heads angrily, rather intimated they would like to pitch into Mr. Sam and hurt him badly. But not an emotion of wrath ruffled the placid bosom of Samuel, as his legs flew like drumsticks down the outside and up the middle by the side of his bewitching partner. The whole company cheered them vociferously, and excited with the applause, they continued tearing down after all the others had become exhausted and halted a moment to recover breath. But Sam's superhuman exertions overcame him finally, leaving Lively alone, yet whirling like a top. Thereupon one of Sam's rivals, Pete Marshall, dashed in, and with might and main, leaped and shuffled and threw himself into every conceivable shape, as if determined to show Miss Lively and all the world that Sam Roberts was of no account. Pete's affection, however, was greater than his discretion. Such a violent exercise took the breath out of him directly, and he dropped like an empty bag. Then was the time for Harry Carey to try his hand, but Lively also soon outwinded him amidst hurrahs and shouts, fully sustaining her well-earned reputation of being the fastest gal on the bayou. One set off, another takes its place, he or she remaining longest on the floor, receiving the most uproarious commendation, and so the dancing continues until broad daylight. It does not cease with the sound of the fiddle, but in that case they set up a music peculiar to themselves. This is called padding accompanied with one of those unmeaning songs, composed rather for its adaptation to a certain tune or measure than for the purpose of expressing any distinct idea. The padding is performed by striking the hands on the knees, then striking the hands together, then striking the right shoulder with one hand, the left with the other, all the while keeping time with the feet, and singing, perhaps, this song, Harper's Creek and Roarin' River, thar, my dear, we'll live forever. Den we'll go to the Injun Nation. All I want in this creation is pretty little wife and big plantation. Chorus, up dat oak and down dat river, two o'er seers and one little nigger. 
Or, if these words are not adapted to the tune called for, it may be that Old Hogeye is a rather solemn and startling specimen of versification, not, however, to be appreciated unless heard at the South. It runneth as follows. Who's been here since I've been gone? Pretty little gal with a Josie on. Hogeye, old Hogeye, and Hosey too. Never see the like since I was born. Here come a little gal with a Josie on. Hogeye, old Hogeye, and Hosey too. Or maybe the following, perhaps equally nonsensical, but full of melody nevertheless as it flows from the Negro's mouth. Ebo Dick and Jordan's Joe, them two niggers stole my yo. Chorus. Hop Jim along, walk Jim along, talk Jim along, etc. Old Black Dan is black as tar, he damn glad he was not dar. Hop Jim along, walk Jim along, talk Jim along, etc. During the remaining holidays succeeding Christmas, they're provided with passes and permitted to go where they please within a limited distance or they may remain and labor on the plantation, in which case they're paid for it. It's very rarely, however, that the latter alternative is accepted. They may be seen at these times hurrying in all directions, as happy-looking mortals as can be found on the face of the earth. They're different beings from what they are in the field. The temporary relaxation, the brief deliverance from fear, and from the lash, producing an entire metamorphosis in their appearance, and demeanor, in visiting, riding, renewing old friendships, or perchance reviving some old attachment, or pursuing whatever pleasure may suggest itself, the time is occupied. Such is southern life as it is, three days in the year, as I found it. The other 362 days being of weariness and fear and suffering and unremitting labor. Marriage is frequently contracted during the holidays, if such an institution may be said to exist among them. The only ceremony required before entering into that holy estate is to obtain the consent of the respective owners. It's usually encouraged by the masters of female slaves. Either party can have as many husbands or wives as the owner will permit, and either is at liberty to discard the other at pleasure. The law in relation to divorce or to bigamy and so forth is not applicable to property, of course. If the wife does not belong on the same plantation with the husband, the latter is permitted to visit her on Saturday nights, if the distance is not too far. Uncle Abram's wife lives seven miles from Epps, on Bayou Huff Power. He had permission to visit her once a fortnight, but he was growing old, as has been said, and truth to say, had latterly well-nigh forgotten her. Uncle Abram had no time to spare from his meditations on General Jackson, connubial dalliance being well enough for the young and thoughtless, but unbecoming a grave and solemn philosopher like himself.